Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Morning. Woo, I like it. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 2. We're in a series entitled Redemption, and what we're doing is we're studying this idea, this theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. And so we began our study in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And out of nothing, God spoke and he formed and he created a garden, the Garden of Eden, that was to be a semblance or a picture of his kingdom. And in the garden, at the pinnacle of his creation, God made man in his own image. And in the garden, we saw man in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other, in perfect relationship with creation. And all of the garden operated out of God's values, peace, righteousness, and justice. And for a period of time, we don't exactly know how long that garden existed, the kingdom of God existed in the garden on earth in all of perfection. And then in Genesis chapter three, we saw how the serpent slithered his way in, deceived Eve and, and really Adam standing right there. And, and then what happened uh, is sin broke into the world and darkness entered into the world. And the perfect world that God had created that he had originally intended uh, was shattered and sin entered in. And we see or got to see how God, in his first chance, responded to brokenness. He didn't hit reset. He didn't obliterate the world. Instead, he came down and he engaged in the mess and he promised rescue. Genesis 3.15, God said this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel a promise that one day a seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent and the devil. And so a uh, path was forged of redemption, how God would once again restore that which was lost in the garden. And so God made that promise of rescue and then creation grew. And eventually God made a promise in Genesis chapter 15 to a guy by the name of Abraham, a promise that through Abraham's line, though he was barren, or he and his wife were barren, I guess, uh, though he had not had a child yet at the age of 100, uh, that God would indeed be faithful to him and keep a promise of descendants numbering as the stars. In Genesis 15, 6, we see one of the most important verses in all of scripture. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and God reckoned or counted it as righteous, that by faith Abraham was justified, not by anything he had done, showing us how redemption happens, that redemption is always by grace. And the plan of redemption was always through grace. And God was faithful for his promise. And eventually Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac, who had a son whose name was Jacob, who had a son who's, well, 12 sons actually, one of them whose name was Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, wrongfully imprisoned, but eventually ascended to second in the throne of Egypt, perfectly timed because at that time, a famine took over the world, leaving Joseph's brothers who thought he was dead, very hungry in a land far away. And so Joseph's brothers, under the direction of their, uh, eventually the blessing of their father, Jacob, went and traveled to Egypt. There, they're reunited with their brother who recognizes them and in a very stirring story, forgives them. Jacob and his family then move 
to Egypt, fulfilling a promise that God had made 400 or so, or not 400, a bunch of years prior to Abraham. And so now Abraham's descendants are in the land of Egypt. And it's not a really big family, 70, 100, 200, something like that. And what transpires then is a fulfillment of a part of what God had said to Abraham. You see, after that key verse in 15.6, God said to Abraham, uh, the nation that I'm going to give you will one day be enslaved. And in Exodus chapter 2, we see this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so the descendants of Abraham, who are going to be known as the Hebrew people or the Jewish people, are enslaved in the land of Egypt. And eventually their slavery, and I don't know how long that took, probably not very long, um, was so much that they were groaning, crying out to God. This is also a reminder to us that if we find ourselves in a place of crying out to God, that as God heard the Egyptian, or I'm sorry, as God heard the Hebrew people enslaved by the Egyptians, God hears us. He hears us in our cries. He hears us in our groans. He hears us in our longings. And God heard them. And because of his covenant to Abraham, see, whenever God, um, whenever God swears, he always swears by himself or he swears on his own name because he's the perfect God. Uh, there is nothing higher or greater than him. And so he, because of the commitment he made to Abraham, because of his word, because of his name said, I will now rescue them. And so like the promise he made in Genesis chapter three, God sends a rescuer. He promises a rescue and then he sends a rescue. And so on to the scene comes this new character. And this character is born in a time where the king of Egypt had told the Hebrew midwives that any boy born, any Hebrew boy born is to be murdered at birth. This way, uh, the Hebrew nation wouldn't rise up in such a way that they could overthrow Egypt. And so they wanted to eliminate all of the males. The story of this young boy that's going to be born is an interesting story. One reason it's interesting is if you go back to Genesis 3 and think how the promise was that the seed of the woman would, um, would conquer uh, the serpent, all of the characters mentioned in the first part of this guy's story, all of the heroes are women, and the midwives are the heroes. His mother is the hero. His sister is the hero. Pharaoh's daughter is the hero. And so clearly through the story, uh, he shows the, the heroism of the women in the story. In fact, in the story, the, the women are good and the men are bad. Pharaoh is bad. The husbands are nowhere to be seen. And so into that is born a baby, a baby named Moses, who miraculously is saved. And as we've seen the movie or heard the story, becomes a prince of Egypt and for 40 years lives in royalty. 40 years lives uh, as no one else as a Hebrew would live, as both a Hebrew, but also a prince. See, it's almost as if he has a dual nature. 
both fully Hebrew, but also living in a kingdom, living as a prince amongst his people. At the age of 40, though, he sees uh, the brutal treatment of the Egyptians over his, uh, his people, the Hebrews. And so his anger rises up. He murders one of the Egyptians. But instead of being embraced as a savior, he's rejected by his own people, a prince rejected by his own kind. As he's rejected then, it starts him down a path of 40 years in the wilderness It would have been very easy for Moses to assume that his days of royalty, his days of influence, his days of leadership were over. And now he would, if anything remembered in history, would just be the prince who disappeared. The prince who uh, had it all but now was gone. And so Moses disappears into the wilderness And I'm sure it would have been very easy for Moses to assume that anything God would have ever wanted to do ended in the moment that he was rejected by his people. And that now the wilderness would be Moses being forgotten. But as we see the story, we see that the the wilderness was actually the season that God needed to prepare both Moses and others for what God wanted to do later. This is a reminder to us that when life doesn't go exactly the way we planned and we may find ourselves in a season of wilderness, that that might actually be exactly what is needed for God to do in us and out there what needs to be done before the time to be used again. The wilderness can be the season of preparation. And so Moses is out. By the way, if you like math and you like clean things, you'll like Moses' life. 40 years as a prince, 40 years in the desert. And then in the desert, what happens? God shows up. God shows up to this forgotten prince. God shows up to this forgotten guy who thinks his life is defined by his biggest mistake. God shows up on the scene and he appears to him in a burning bush. And God says to Moses, I'm going to use you again after 40 years, Moses. And Moses, as any of us might be, is a bit hesitant at first But after the conversation with Moses and God, uh, Moses arrives at a conclusion that, okay, God, if you really want to use me, then, uh, then maybe I will. But one of the things he says to God is this, God, uh, if I go back, they're not going to believe me. The, The people who will remember me when I show back up on the scene, they don't even like me. They're the reason I left in the first place. And to that, God says, well, let me prove to them that I'm with you. Let me prove to them uh, that you are my chosen rescuer for those that are enslaved. And so this conversation in the beginning of Exodus 4 begins. And Moses, the uh, one who is uh, the seed of the woman that was mentioned, Moses, the one who was saved by a bunch of women, uh, Moses, that guy, uh, God looks at him and says, hey, what's in your hand? He says, it's a, it's a rod, God. He says, well, throw it on the ground. If you ever watch Saturday Night Live, that's funny to you. If you don't, just forget about it. And so Moses throws it on the ground. And as he throws it on the ground, it turns into what? A serpent. Why? Well, it's clearly a direct tie back to Genesis 3, where the seed of the woman, where one who would be born of a woman would have power over a serpent. 
And so now you have a rescuer, a rescuer who uh, now throws it on the ground and it's a serpent. And what does Moses do? Well, what many of us would do. He backs away from the serpent. It scares him. It brings fear to him. The serpent is who caused the problem in the first place. The serpent is why there is a breakdown in relationship between man and God and man and each other and man and creation and why they're enslaved, which was not a value of God. God's values were freedom and justice and righteousness. The serpent is why all of that exists. And so now we see the serpent some many, many years later from the garden reemerge. Now, I didn't watch a lot of Steve Irwin growing up. It wasn't my thing. But I did go to my, um, my sister's house earlier this week and my nephews, um, ranging from ages like four to eight or something like that, um, have this stuffed snake. And so the stuffed snake was on the ground and I was up in their room playing with them. And I said, hey, if there's a snake and it's dangerous, where do you grab it? And they both said, by the neck, or all three of them said, right? Because that's what you do. You grab it by the neck so it doesn't bite you. God looks at Moses and says, grab it by the tail. Just grab it by the tail. And so uh, as if to say this, just grab it. It has no power over you. Just grab it. It's nothing. That, that serpent that represents evil, that represents the power of Egypt, that represents slavery, that represents uh, Satan, that right there, just grab it like it's almost nothing. Just grab it. Just control it. And so here we see the story of a rescuer. The story of a rescuer who's going to have power given by God over the serpent. Exactly what's promised in Genesis chapter 3. And so with that and a couple of other signs, Moses feels enough strength or enough um, courage to go back and to tell the Hebrews, your redemption is on its way. And so he shows up to tell them about how God wants to redeem. And for a while, they get pretty excited. They're, they're in. And so he tells them this. And, uh, and then Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he says, hey, I just want you to know God's going to redeem his people and he's going to rescue them from slavery. And, Moses, and Pharaoh says, no, he's not. And when, um, when Moses shows up on the scene to show the power of God to the, the, the enemy, what the enemy does instead is flex his power. He flexes and he, and he makes himself bigger because right before the people are going to become free, the enemy wants to exert his power in such a way that'll make them be afraid of him so as to not walk into the freedom that they're going to get. This is, by the way, a thing that the enemy loves to do today, that in the moment we're approaching freedom, to flex in such a way to make us afraid to walk in it. Like when God is going to break through, the enemy ramps up his attack. I've had at least one moment in my life where I knew I was dealing with something demonic. And I remember in that moment, I, um, I, I, I said something that poked, like, like, like poked the, the demonic spirit. And in that moment, I saw come out like a fire, uh, um, uh, that 
it took me back for a moment and made me go, I know exactly what just happened there. I poked something with, 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 uh, with something holy, and, and the enemy right there just flexed. I got to like, physically see that happen in that brief moment. And this is what happens in the unseen world all the time, where we're moving toward freedom, and we're getting close, and the enemy flexes to get us to shrink back. Like there's about to be breakthrough in the marriage. There's about to be breakthrough in, in the addiction. There's about to be breakthrough in this. And the enemy flexes and we shrink back. Now what happens is the people get dejected. And so if you move over to Exodus 6, the way Pharaoh flexes is he actually makes life harder for them. It's his way of saying freedom is not a reality. You will never get it. And it dejects the spirit. And so if you've ever been approaching freedom, but then you've taken a step back or it's actually seemed to get harder, what was the enemy's goal? Well, exactly what happened to them, that your spirit would become dejected. And so that is what happened to them. And in that then, God says to Moses in chapter six, I need you to remind them that I am a God who makes promises and keeps promises. And so in Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. The motivation for redemption, by the way, is the promise that God has made us. That's always God's motivation. His motivation is his own name, his own holiness. And he says, I did this. I made this promise. Now I'm going to keep this promise. And in verse 8, he says, tell them this, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. In other words, for generations, you've heard of the promise. Well, this generation will know the promise. You know me as a God who makes promises. Now you're going to know me as a God who keeps promises. Friends, this is the God that we need to know. Not just the God who makes promises, not just the God who whispers things, not just the God who says things, a God who keeps his promises. And so this is the God now that uh, is speaking to the Israelites through Moses, his chosen rescuer. What happens next is a series of 10 plagues, a series of 10 plagues that systematically attack and destroy um, the strongholds of Egypt as a way for God to say, uh, whatever you think makes you powerful, I'm more powerful than that. And so God lays out this plan and he destroys their strongholds. He shows them how he's more powerful until it gets to the 10th plague. The 10th plague is to be the death of the firstborn. A tragedy, of course. And that plague was going to extend to anyone in the land of Egypt, including the Hebrews. But God wanted to give them a way out, a way of redemption. And so in chapter 12, we see the institution of what today is still the most celebrated Jewish festival. And so the Hebrews, who are now faced with death of the firstborn, who are going to sit under the penalty of God's wrath, his, his just wrath, well, they're given a way out. And so in verse 5, we see God beginning to explain his plan. He says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly 
of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. See, from the beginning, back into the garden and through the story of Abraham and through other stories, the way that God always redeems was through the shedding of blood. It's part of the storyline from the beginning that redemption always has a price, that there's a cost to redemption. Even imputed in the word redemption is the idea of ransom. There has to be a payment. And throughout the scripture, the payment is always the shedding of innocent blood. And so here in this story, God says that the shedding of the innocent blood is going to be a pure spotless lamb. And so grab a lamb. Every family is going to grab a lamb. And what's going to happen is on the same night, you're going to kill the innocent lamb. And then what would happen is you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to put it over your doorpost. And anyone who has the blood of the lamb over their doorpost is going to be saved is going to be redeemed. In essence, is going to be uh, forgiven. And the, the wrath of God is going to pass by anyone who is underneath the blood. And then that word that he used, an assembly, the assembly is going to gather, and that assembly is going to be united under the blood. This word assembly, it's a word eda, E-D-A. It's never been used up until this point to describe the Hebrew people. They've always been described as the Hebrew people or the nation. It's the first time that this word assembly is used to introduce a new group of people. And the assembly is going to be a group of people who are united under a blood sacrifice. And so a new assembly, congregation, group is going to be formed. And what unites them is being under a blood sacrifice. Now, this is going to be known as the Passover. And it's the first part of the process of redemption. So what God is doing now is he's, he's taking his, uh, ethereal seems like a bad word, but he's taking his promise, his promise of redemption. And now he's beginning to show them, here's my process of redemption. And my process of redemption starts with a Passover, the shedding of innocent blood. And it'll form a new assembly. The first part of the process of redemption. What ensues next in uh, verse 36 is an interesting fulfillment of a promise. See, in Genesis 15, 9, I'm going back all the way to that starry night conversation between Abraham and God. God said to him, I am going to give you a people and I am going to build a great nation and the descendants are going to number. And by the way, um, most historians believe that there's around two and a half million Egyptians, I'm sorry, Hebrews during this time, which is certainly a lot of growth from 70, uh, but also realize that this was over a span of 400 years. Like that's not even the, America hasn't even been around for 400 years, Right. So it is great growth, but clearly there was oppression, right? Like we've grown from how many people to 300 million in 200 years. And so uh, you have uh, this, this nation. And God said, when you go into slavery, they're going to go into slavery, right? But they're going to come out with great riches. What a weird statement. I mean, the idea of going from enslaved to free, well, that I can understand, But the idea of going from enslaved to free to rich is hard to comprehend. But in verse 36 of chapter 12, we see the second part of God's process of redemption. Part one, the Passover. Second uh, part two is, is plunder. 
And what happens is uh, the uh, Hebrew people are given favor in God's eyes, and the Egyptians just allow them to come in and to take everything that is theirs. And so they go from enslaved to, to, to being free, but also to rich. In other words, they're given all of the provision that they're going to need in the short term for the journey that they're going to go on. The Egyptians are uh, uh, basically, in essence, allow themselves to be plundered of their wealth for the sake of these Hebrews. And so now um, the Hebrews have experienced Passover and they've been joined together in a common assembly under uh, uh, the blood. And now they've been given the plunder and the provision that they're going to need for their journey. What happens next in chapter 13 is a pillar emerges. And the pillar is a cloud by day and a fire by night. And what the pillar does is it acts as a guide. It tells them when to go and when not to go, where to go and where not to go. It tells them to stop and then to start. And what the pillar does is it is a constant reminder of the incredible power of God. Imagine the, this new assembly that is formed under the blood that's been given all of the provision to now look out and to see this massive pillar of cloud or pillar of fire so powerful that the entire assembly can see it and know when to move. And so the pillar emerges. And the pillar is going to remind them of God's power, God's presence, and God's practical guidance of when to move and when not to. And in this case, what the pillar does is it leads them right up to the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea. And at this time now, what, they, what has happened is they've gone from complete enslavement and one type of group to now under the, the, the common blood of the Passover, they've been formed into a new type of group and an assembly in Edah. They've been given all of the provision because the Egyptians allowed themselves to be plundered. They're following a pillar that reminds them of the power and the presence and the practical guidance of God. And they've been led up to a sea, a sea that is the barrier stopping them from fully experiencing their freedom. See, they can have received the Passover. They can be, have been given the plunder. Uh, they can be following the pillar, but yet not still have fully walked into their freedom. In fact, they're not in the land of freedom yet. They're still in the land of slavery. And so they, they walk right up, right up to the barrier. I keep thinking of that scene in Lord of the Rings when Sam and um, Frodo are walking out and Sam stops and he goes, if I take one step further, I'm the farthest up from home I've ever been. Like there was this barrier stopping him and it was courage that would get him past right. And the Egyptians, or the, I'm sorry, the Hebrews get there and there's a sea. Now here's what they know about the sea. They can't cross the sea on their own. There's no strength, no power that they have that will allow them to get through the barrier that is stopping them from their full freedom. In fact, if it's left up to them, we're going to see what happens when you try to cross the sea on your own strength to some people. And so there they are. And between them and their freedom is this barrier. And they do what most people do when they get to this point in life. They get afraid. They get afraid. And so God shows up and he says, fear not. Stand firm, 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. In other words, the only way you're going to walk fully into your freedom is if you let God do the work. The only way you're going to walk or get through this barrier is if you allow God's power to be exercised, not your own. He says, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. In other words, the enemy that they're looking back to, if you see them today, that means you're looking at them. The thing that opposes you, the thing that oppresses you, the thing that enslaves you, you will never see it again once God's power is exercised. You won't see it again. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Then God looks at Moses and he says, tell the people to look forward. In other words, take your eyes off of that which oppresses you. Take your eyes off of that which enslaves you and instead look forward to the place of freedom. Where's the pillar? It's out in front. It's not behind. What's happened is they've taken their eyes off of the pillar and they've placed their eyes back on the enemy. And God says, place your eyes on the pillar. Then what happens in chapter 14 is the sea parts by God's power, opening up a path for them to walk through. And then the pillar leads them through the thing that was inhibiting them from freedom, gets them to the other side. And you know what they do? They worship. They praise him for delivering them to the other side. Now they're in the land of freedom. I want to tell you about the land of freedom very briefly. There's still battles in the land of freedom. The difference is, Now they're fighting from a place of freedom, not fighting for their freedom. Now they're fighting from a platform of victory already. They're not trying to achieve victory. They're standing in victory. This is God's process of redemption for his people. He lays it out in a literal story for us to see how it is that God redeems. So let's take a moment, though, before we go and see how it points us to a bigger and a better story. A story later where God would send another baby born in an obscure way to a courageous woman who wouldn't spend 40 years in the desert, but would spend 40 days in it, who would emerge and talk about the power that he had over life and death, the power over the enemy, who would see a people enslaved, enslaved in sin, enslaved in addiction, enslaved to the power of death, and who would show up on the scene and would know the process of redemption because he was there watching the uh, first story, this story, unfold. And so this rescuer, the seed of the woman, would know what it took to have complete power over the serpent, the enemy, And he knew that the process of redemption always starts with Passover. But instead of finding a pure spotless lamb, he became the pure spotless lamb. 
And so he went to the cross and shed his blood as the ultimate sacrifice because redemption always has a price. And that price is the shedding of innocent blood. And so Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, shed his innocent blood and did what? Formed a new Eda. Not the Hebrew word Eda, but the Greek word ekklesia. He forms an assembly. He forms a new type of people who would be united under what? His blood. And this new ecclesia, this new assembly would be given, Paul says in Ephesians, all of the power and the riches and the hope. In other words, they would be given all of the provision that they needed because this Passover lamb would allow his own kingdom to be plundered. He would allow all that was his, his power, his riches, his grace to be taken by his people. And so he'd allow himself to be plundered. And then what would emerge? A pillar. Not a pillar, though, that was out there, but a pillar, the Holy Spirit, that would be in here, that would have one job. And what was that? To be a reminder of the power of God, the presence of God, and would be the practical guidance for the assembly and the individuals of the assembly to know when to go and when not to go, when to stop and where to start. And so the pillar would show up, not out there, but in here to lead the assembly. And what would the pillar do? The Holy Spirit. He would lead us to places where it would appear like a Red Sea was a barrier that we could never get past. Where the fear, the addiction, the jealousy, the greed, the insecurity pride. It would be a barrier. We would feel like we can never get across it. And if we tried, we wouldn't make it. So what do we do? We let God's power get us through it. And so what would the pillar do? Lead us up to a place where in faith, we wouldn't look back at the enemy, but we would look forward to the pillar the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we would let God get us through those Red Seas to the other side of freedom. See, friend, if you try to cross those barriers in your life to freedom on your own strength, you'll never make it. The sea will swallow you up and destroy you. If you try to overcome greed on your own, you won't make it. If you try to overcome jealousy, addiction, sexual sin, pornography, whatever it might be, on your own, you'll never make it. You weren't designed to be able to get across the barrier, the sea on your own. The only thing to do is to stay silent and to let God part it and then the Holy Spirit to lead you through it. But you know what's interesting? On this side of the sea, God says, don't look back at the enemy, look forward. But once you cross the sea, you know what God says over and over and over? Look back. See, once you cross the sea, God says, look back and see my faithfulness. See everything that I have brought you through. See how I have been the one that's got you to the other side. And then what ought our response to be? 
to praise him and to worship him because he's brought us into redemption and he's the one who brought us to the other side in our freedom. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.